This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your pop culture podcast roundup. He's Andrew Harrison. And she's Sean Pattenden. This week, we are delighted to talk to Lord Chancellor of Chillout, a man who's worked with the likes of Madonna and Blair and Beth Orton, Mr. William Orbit. And Sarah's got a job in cyber. We watch tech thriller The Undeclared War, starring Simon Pegg and Adrian Lester on Channel 4. And keep your pecker up, we listen to Jolly Swedish Oaks Viagra Boys, whose new album Cave World is out next week. Plus, we delve into My Life as a Rolling Stone, a new four-part special on the band who possibly invented the template of skinny-ass rock and roll. It's all on BBC Two. All this and more on today's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Regular listeners will know that this time last week, we were sat in a field, Andrew and I, and we were so happy. Have you recovered yet, Andrew? Well, I hope my voice has, because I listened to last <laughs> week's podcast and I sounded like Davros gargling and Brillo pad. So yes, I, th- I hope so. I feel <laughs> I feel my true self, which is, again, depressing because I don't want to be my true self. Are you still sifting unspecified worthy farm dust out of your Doc Martens? Yeah. Um, and every year when I open my Glastonbury tent, it's got the past 10 years worth of Guardian guys in the bottom um, <laughs> all going with the staples going rusty but yeah I'm kind of back in the real world how, how about you are you are you sort of reconnected Sean well I, I don't know I'm just very very deaf I'll just be saying pardon a lot because I was just so near that speaker at the avalanches which was totally fantastic was to, I can't I, hear anything one thing we didn't mention mm. last week is that oh. I ran into a friend of the podcast Steve Davis mm. and we saw him do an impromptu DJ set of acid <laughs> prog and I've got to say, it was beyond incredible. It was in the Glade, and so he just appeared out of nowhere. It wasn't it wasn't announced. wasn't on the time, yeah. uh, wasn't on the uh, timetable, and did this incredible set of long, long, long acid prog, and then just went straight into G funk and was playing <laughs> like kind of LA low rider, you know, sexy lady music. So basically, <laughs> um, Steve is you know we love him, but I, I yeah. especially love him now. So there you, you go. Anyway, more. I missed it. Yeah. yeah. Snooker anyway. G Funk crossover. Snooker G Funk. <laughs> Snooker G Funk Luke be nuts is he. Yes. You'll notice there the voice of our special guest for the day. It's Andrew Perry, writer at large, working for everyone from the Daily Telegraph, the Observer, to Mojo and Q. He was also a staffer at the legendary Select magazine back in the day. Hello, Andrew Perry. How are you? Hi there. It's been a long time. I'm noticing a, a sort of customary psychic fallout uh, mm. sort of amongst my brethren here, ex-select yes. brethren. Yes, <laughs> usually around the sort of first of first of uh, of July, one can expect. You know, long sort of time lags between answers. Yeah. <laughs> well, when we would when we would come home and, and do a thirty six hour shift, put it together with a pull out magazine uh, with me slave driving you. Yeah, all. to do twenty minutes work. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. It, it was a long time ago. Anyway, Andrew, tell us all about this book you've been writing with Bez. Yes, it was uh, actually announced yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's called Buzzin. Buzzin. Uh, the nine lives of a happy Monday. And, right. Uh, because Bez has actually written a book before mm. uh, in 1998. 
yes. which just covered the Mondays. And there was a lot of stuff at that point he couldn't really say. Mm. And uh, this is his full life also bio up to present day. And he's a remarkable man. Um, one, one can, <laughs> when working with someone, very quickly um, lose affection for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Bez is someone who, you know, has so many hidden depths. You, mm. you would be, I mean, he's a big reader, for instance. Okay, what does he like to read? One would imagine that he just had no time for that sort of thing as a 24-hour party person. Mm -hmm. He has other commitments that that sort of make literature a kind of uh, an impossibility, really. What what does he read? What does he like? Many different things. Mm Mm-hmm. All mentioned in the fabulous oh, new go. book. <laughs> Don't tease us. Yeah. Well, he, he reads, he's, um, he's very politically aware. As you okay. know, he stood for a, a MP mm-hmm. in 2015. And from that, that sort of came from a sort of eco-awakening when a friend took him to a fracking site. It just kind of blew his mind, and he's sort of fell. I he, thought Bez's mind in. was already blown. I thought that was the point of Bez. It, it's in a state of perpetual blowing. <laughs> yes, okay. <yeah>. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, with daily um, prompting, shall yeah. we say? Uh, and uh, he actually part of his awakening came from Joe Strummer. Mm. So you may remember it's again a, a timely Glastonbury reference. Joe Strummer was uh, an avid. Glastonbury attendee and used to hold these fabulous campfire all weekend mm. gatherings. Bez had fallen in with him because Black Grape made a, a single England's Irie for yeah. Euro 96. And by 98, when Joe was, 97, 98, Joe was beginning to hold court, Bez was a regular there as well. He mm. famously got arrested, uh, he says, for the um, possession of one tab of ecstasy. Uh, and then came back into the site dressed as a Mexican, <laughs> uh, thus eluding all police yes. uh, 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 sort of tailing. And through Joe's friends, uh, one of whom is Joe Corrie, yes. son of Malcolm McLaren, um, he uh, has sort of become a bit of an eco-warrior and has become very aware. He had various personal motivations, but he's subsequently become a beekeeper. Uh, he runs an eco-garden on a rooftop in Manchester. Uh, he now lives in the country. He does many, many remarkable things, too many to list here. He got very into fasting. Really? There's not a lot uh, of it in the first place. Ah, uh, but he, he lived large and he put on a lot of weight in, uh, in the f- early part of lockdown, the first lockdown. So he's a fascinating guy. Uh, and the more I <laughs> spoke to him, you know, I was thinking, well, we'll be in and out of here in a couple of hours. But the, it just went on and on. And the more he revealed about himself, it was like, wow, we've got an incredible sort of lifetime arc of which, you know, the first four or five chapters of the early Happy Mondays and Black Grape are really only the prelude, really. The, right. sort of the and when's it out? October the 27th, roughly. 
Before we get this jam wagon on the road, remember you can get the Culture Bunker and all of our shows early and without adverts when you support us on Patreon. A daily smorgasbord of politics, science, pop culture, and much more will be yours. In the past couple of weeks, we've had the author Jeff Dyer, The Secret Life of Fast Fashion, what they're reading in China and why it matters. It all beats getting up to another row between two politicians every morning on the Today programme. Back us on Patreon and help us do more good stuff. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Let's start with the fun stuff. Are you ready for World War 3.0? Channel 4's big summer drama is The Undeclared War, co-created by Peter Kosminski of Wolf Hall fame, and also Channel 4's excellent ISIS drama The State, and also the writers behind The Salisbury Poisoning. Serious concerns and imagined cyber attack on Britain in 2024, the efforts of GCHQ to contain it, the mirror world of Russian intelligence, and how GCHQ intern Sarah Parvin deals with a conspiracy that apparently only she can see. Commissioned back in spring 2021, the undeclared war lands at an uncomfortably timely moment amid all the worrying possible outcomes of the Ukraine war. So, will your toaster start shouting Putinist propaganda at you? The six-part series started this week. All episodes are now on all four. What did we think? Firstly, here's a flavour of the show. We have a serious problem. Looks like the internet. Tell me. It's a cyber attack, and it's very dangerous. I might have found something. You have to stab it before it activates. This is an act of war. We need to hit back in a language they understand. If we do this, we're into a cycle of escalation and a catastrophic loss of life. Think outside the box. We're being played. Make no mistake, we are under attack. And we will defend ourselves. So it's 2024, Boris Johnson isn't Prime Minister anymore, and the first thing we see is the whole of BT Openreach going down for inexplicable reasons. No internet, no podcasts. Horror is uncontained. Andrew Perry, are you a political TV drama type of chap? I'm barely even really a TV type of Uh, chap. Uh, So this was very much uh, uncharted waters Mm -hmm. and uh, out of comfort zone for me. Compounding this, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that's really trying to look at screens less. Yes. Is generally my, my sort of drift in life at the moment. So mm. when I get to sort of eight, nine o'clock at night after being in front of a screen for often the best part of 12 hours, mm-hmm. the last thing I want to do is look at a screen. Mm-hmm. And then I don't want to watch something on screen, which is all screens. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> which screens I found screens. immediately kind of physically repellent you mm-hmm. know i needed to be away from this drama because mm. it was just people looking over each other's shoulders at gobbledygook which often at that time of night is what i see you know <laughs> just sort of random characters sort of walls of them and uh, i i found that part of it very difficult there were some interesting parts almost like metaphorical sequences yeah. where she was Sarah was was kind of trying to break the code and trying to find identities. Yeah, they and kind she of, goes into a into a telephone box in yeah. the country. It's a kind of a pulling. mind palace approach, isn't it? In that they, yeah. they take this approach of trying to what what the very, very visually unpromising thing of here's me looking at some code. They yeah. translate it into I step in I step through the doors of a tent, which turns out to be mm. a ballroom, and then at the back there's a swimming pool, and then yeah. through that I could pass to a desert. Which I found actually quite it's good visual, you know, eye candy and yes. certainly a great yeah. way to get away from just tapping away just the keyboard. screens and screens and screens but you know my big problem really is uh, and a lot with cinema too um, because I find when I go to the cinema the lights go down the curtain goes up and 
I'm almost asleep before, <laughs> as, a, as a young father as I am, uh, or a yeah. middle-aged father. It's plausibility, really. Mm. I, I found from the absolute get-go, I, I just couldn't believe any of this. I mean, she basically, Sarah walks in as an intern, and within 10 minutes, she's embroiled in, you know, this national security issue of which she is the only person there, completely untrained, that has the, the, the equipment to sort of try and crack what's going on, you know. Within about 20 minutes, she's sitting opposite the PM at a meeting of Cobra, you know. Sean, what did you think? I would very broadly agree with Andy Perry there. But also, I do think it's terribly difficult, as I say, to dramatise hacking and counter-hacking. And that's what we see when she does go through the memory palace idea and, you know, she's suddenly in water and she's suddenly in a field and all those things. They were quite nice, but I wanted more of that in the end because it is people looking at code. And the problem is everybody's got no internet, there are no flights. Well, yeah, but we don't see everybody not got no flights. We don't see everybody got no internet and they can't get a hospital appointment. We don't actually see any of the consequences in the first episode. So what seems like this big, big thing, this is, you know, this is life or death here, just seems like someone can't look up, you know, a fly, can't Google something. Funnily enough, everybody can get social media. So apparently all the Russian social media bots have gone crazy on it. But within that, you know, the, the stakes weren't high enough. Well, we didn't see the stakes for me. And so it gets very, very wordy, very intellectual, very bland. And it's it's just quite pompous in the end. It's someone saying they're writing a really, really high-end, serious drama about this terrible thing that happened. We've just had COVID. We've been through something like that. And it seemed to pale in comparison to what sort of real life has, has offered up. I don't know. I don't, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not sure I agree with you, actually, because I, I actually mm-hmm. found it pretty engaging mm. and pretty much blasted through the first three episodes. I agree that the kind of rather implausible idea that the work experience is the only person who can clock the bit of bad code and ends up getting thanked and a round of applause in front of the Prime Minister. It's the sort of thing that appears on Twitter and people then go, and then and everybody clapped and then I woke up. (laughs) You know, it it, it, Mm. but I I actually think that sort of does it a slight disservice because that aspect is very, very quickly forgotten. And we get into a much more involving and a much deeper look at the genuine nature of these threats. And again, maybe this is a slightly spoilery, but we see it from the other end. We see it from the, uh, the point of view of a young recruit at the FSB. There's a really chilling bit at the end of episode three where this young recruit is basically, I can't believe I'm saying this, a very exciting scene involving PowerPoint. (laughs) They're they're watching a PowerPoint at the FSB headquarters where a bunch of very groovy young people who look like people you'd be quite happy to have a drink with are sitting around saying, yes, this is how we will make it possible for Russia to win a conventional war and conquer Britain. This is phase one where we will discredit their leaders, discredit one another, sow dissent, make everyone hate everyone else, destroy their faith in their news, and then we'll launch a conventional war. And it's properly chilling because on the plausibility level, all this stuff really is happening. As everybody who listens to the, the non-culture bunker aspects of this of this podcast series know, it's all really happening. They haven't made this stuff up. There's a little bit of kind of dramatic license taken. I'm not sure that Russia necessarily has a camera inside GCHQ, but I will give the show that if it will illustrate the broader truth of what's going on, which is the undeclared war is a real one. And, you know, most security analysts will say it's been running since long before the initial annexations of Crimea. You know, this this has been Russia's great genius 
discovery has been that it can fight this asymmetrical warfare through information. It can never fight it through what I'm delighted, Andrew, and you'll be delighted as well to hear this, is referred to in military circles as heavy metal. They can't fight <laughs> it through heavy metal, but they can fight it through information warfare. You can fight anything with heavy metal. You can fight anything with heavy metal, And you can watch anything that's about computing. Yeah. I know Screaming that. Screaming for vengeance, yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I was actually kind of carried <laughs> along with it quite uh, quite well. I mean, almost to an extent that certain other characters were peripheral. I mean, Sarah's story is clearly meant to be the way in for the general viewer. I was actually less interested in her than I was in the two the, the clashes of the two monolithic organisations mm-hmm. and this kind of shadow war as they kind of parry each other through through cyberspace. My problem with plausibility wasn't at all with the actual yes. content of the movie because I, I fully believed that and, mm. and the fact that there was uh, uh, two years hence a a new prime minister that you didn't recognise, that felt I pretty I can't real. believe that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, and also lots yeah. of little sort of subtle implications that, like, the pandemic didn't go away, it, it's mm. come back. You said a lot of people running around with masks. I, I understand what you mean about not seeing the consequences. You don't see planes fall out of the sky. And, you know, and in a country where we go insane if Kentucky Fried Chicken runs out of chicken, <laughs> mm-hmm. how would we handle it if the entire internet went? Yeah. Maybe we could go for a walk and reconnect with our families. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think I'm going to stick with this, even if you guys aren't. This is what drama should be doing, though, shouldn't it? It should be taking very, very difficult things. I think the ultimate thing is that, obviously, is it's there to provoke discussion about mm. something mm quite a lot deeper than yes. you know we really get through the news or through the media so in, in that sense it, it's preposterousness would almost certainly get people talking in the pub you know, yeah well i think or, you know, or at work around the cooler the next day we do live in a world where preposterous becomes true the, the, the very next day but yeah anyway the undeclared war it's out now it's on all four now every week we ask our guests to bring in a current favorite track affairs so we can all look cool andy perry what's yours and why do you like it? I'm quite a fan of stupid punk rock. Did you know that about me? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. There's quite a lot of stupid punk rock coming out of Australia right now. Maybe a lot of people will have heard of Amel and the Sniffers. Mm-hmm. But my personal favourite are a trio called the Chats, who are kind of none more stupid and yet secretly, I think, are, have genius within them. And they're just making their second album. One of the singles, the latest single that's come from it, is called Six Liter GTR. The guy is just an amazing little character writer. Mm. And it's he, he was coming off a plane and he saw this car with the number plate, 6L GTR. And he's 23. He's just a drinker. He doesn't drive. He squats. He goes, I don't even know what a GTR is. Is that what the car is? <laughs> and he just tried to imagine who the person was that owned that car. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what you... Have you heard of this band? I'd never I've heard, heard of it. I've, I've heard the chats, yeah. Well, they, they, had one, they had one viral smash which put them on the map called yes. yeah. Smoko. Smoko. That's right, yeah. I'm on Smoko, so leave me alone. I'm on Smoko. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in a fag. Basically, I'm having a fag, leave as me alone. I'm on, yeah. fa- I'm on fag break, Great. basically, is what it's about. <laughs> and um, the guy has an, a, a ginger mullet. And they made a, a video for zero money. They say that the only money they spent was on uh, a frankfurter <laughs> that the character eats in the third verse. <laughs> this is what we like. Well, we're going to put this on the rolling playlist. Obviously, the links to the rolling playlist are, of course, in the show notes. So you can click and play to your heart's desire. Here they are. This is the chats with six litre GTR. I'm going on Smoko. 
Six Leader GTR. Six Leader GTR. Six Leader GTR. Now, Stockholm Syndrome. Cuddly Swedish Retrobates Viagra Boys release their third album, Cave World, next week. Now, we at the podcast lapped up Welfare Jazz last year with its pulsating anarchic fun, TM. What will we think of Cave World? A meditation on human evolution or lack of. Yes, it's about that. Let us listen to Punk Rock Loser to get us in the mood. I tried to warn you that I'm bad and I'm loose. I'm looser than a piece of low-hanging fruit. And I don't go to parties where folks get dressed up. I go to the function just to fuck shit up. I want you, baby, that ain't juice in my cup. It's Tomethazine and a little seven up. I tried to warn you that I'm bad and I'm loose. I'm looser than a piece of low hanging fruit. I ain't your average. Sure and glamorous I keep things loose I ain't your average Punk rock loser Yeah, I'm a savage I'm really cool Andrew Perry, were you as excited about welfare jazz as we were hopping up and down last year? I think Viagra, but are we allowed to even say their name? Yes. Now, in this company, I was wondering, because we had a bit of a, an experience in the mid-90s, a certain magazine we worked on, uh, which can't be named for mm. legal reasons, <laughs> had to pulp an entire issue yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> due to mentioning a certain product that was on the market that one shouldn't use as a recreational narcotic. Uh, you know, I don't I, know, I don't know how that. these boys are actually still <laughs> in business at well, this point. When you try, when you try to find the Viagra Boys uh, Facebook page, something pops up and says. Do you have a problem with uh, erectile dysfunction? Do you need, do you need help? Like, no, I just want to look at the Viagra Boys page. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's just from the very top. They are uh, clearly a band with a certain singularity of vision, yes, and yes. Um, you know they they will shrink from nothing. I found I was quite surprised yeah. um, that this record has sort of quite a lot more of a contemporary feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot more going on in the production. It doesn't just feel like the kind of flat out, heads down, three chord nonsense, which yeah. is my bread and butter and my <laughs> the stuff that, um, you know, pumps through my veins. Mm. So I, I, I was, um, I thought they seemed like, you know, and a very interesting band on the ideas level, which um, mm. I think the music is a good update of adrenalized rock music. Um, but the, the the lyrics are very outside the box. Mm, mm. Clearly, they have come down on the side of the sort of remaining unevolved, almost devo, <laughs> de-evolution. You know that <laughs> that mm. thing of uh, doesn't it end with something about monkeys return to it monkey does. or something? Yes, well, that's the yeah. whole theme of it. And there is a quote. I will I will find it out here that Sebastian Murphy, the singer, says. Um, He saw a conspiracy theory video about evolution, apparently, and he says, I just wrote down, who is the true ape? People look down at apes as primitive life forms, but we're just this horrible, lazy society killing each other and starting wars. Does that make them the true ape 
or us. So this is, you know, this this is the big concept is have we evolved? And also, do we want to evolve? Actually, non-evolving looks like a lot more fun. And well, Harrison. The, the counterpoint to this is that uh, the, the unevolved individual who appears in the song Troglodyte and also yes. kind of keeps recurring. Mm. This whole record is shot through with lampooning conspiracy theory. And there's a hilarious track called Creepy Crawlers, which involves him rolling around shrieking, they're injecting 5G into the babies and <laughs> turning them into adrenochrome and don't believe Bill Gates and all this kind of... It's basically lampoons every aspect of the ridiculous conspiracist anti-science, anti-rational mm-hmm. worldview. And I just love the idea that a, that a bunch of punk rock idiots who also discovered a drum machine who are only in this for the jumping up and down and behaving like total clowns are the rational ones. <laughs> yeah, These are the sensible guys. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, beneath all the noise and the racket and the stupidity, it is absolutely a straight-up defence of thinking properly and, you know, <laughs> dealing with the world as it is, absolutely. as opposed to turning it into a dramatised backdrop for your own, you know, foolish paranoias. Return to Monkey, the closing track, which which does posit this kind of anti-evolution thing, is very... I get it very much on the Julian Cope uh, thing of returning to your lower self. Yeah. Primitive, mm. primitive wisdom. Mm. You know, it is not... The, it's, it's not sort of rejection of, of thought, but it's getting down to your instinctive levels where the truth of the world is more easily revealed. Yeah. Track two is called Cave Hole. I'm saying it's Plato's cave that we're seeing mm. here. And they, I, I, I was whole, getting oh, a photo of Andre Gide as well about humanity and whether we're all just arseholes or doomed. Can we talk about the lyrics? Because I think the lyrics is what suddenly sets it apart. And I wanted to quote a quote from Baby Criminal, which is the, the, the um, opening track. And obviously, I say, there are characters populating these songs. This one is, he spent his time in the kitchen microwaving batteries. He even killed a squirrel and turned it into a hat. At which point, I just <laughs> thought this man's a f***ing genius. You don't get that from Ed Sheeran, do you? <laughs> no, no, no. And, and the refrain being, he used to be a baby, now he's just a criminal. That's deep. I mean, there's so much in that. And yet it's post-punk, post-truth, well, hey, we're having a party, can have a beer, as well at the same time. Um, another line, I sauntered to the party in my favourite coat. On the back was an image of a shrimp on a boat. <laughs> and it's about him having nicked this coat that was someone, someone's grandma's coat on the, on the Ain't No Thief. So I'm absolutely delighted in this. I ain't no thief. We just have the same stuff. I think yeah. it's the, <laughs> <laughs> it's, the yeah. it's a very, very entertaining record. And yeah. I, I think that's, that's what it, um, its place and why, you know, we should be talking about it. I mean, we've already found five and a half minutes of uh, yeah. sort of mileage in it because you can just keep talking about it. It's, it, it's just very, very engaging kind of elevated stupidity that's a lot cleverer than it's pretending to be. They're very, very, very funny. And, and are, are they Scandinavians? There's some... They're Scandinavian. They're in Sweden, but um, Sebastian Murphy was born in L.A., he moved to Sweden. Um, yeah, so that explains it. He's also a working tattoo artist. And if you look at his Instagram feed, he's really good. I mean, I, you know, I'd almost travel there to get something. Yeah, he's just great. Yeah, so, um, and that kept him going. Obviously, is keeps him going through a pandemic. Apparently, people still wanted tattoos somehow. I like the way the music sounds. You know, it doesn't sound like just one thing, but it sounds like it's all rushing towards you. It's like being on a motorway with all the vehicles rushing towards you because a lot of it is double tracked, double tracked music, but also double tracked vocals and double tracked in a really weird way. And this sort of, you know, movement and sort of fear and overwhelmingness. I was really enjoying this morning. And we're recommending this, aren't we? Very much so. Yes, very much so. Another of my favourite quotes, Sebastian Murphy once said, I think our music really is for the worst people. So I'm in. We are the worst people. (laughs) 
<laughs> in our Islington bunker. Yes. yes. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A couple of weeks ago, I was fortunate enough to speak with William Orbit, a man whose shelves groan with countless music trophies and awards. He was key, of course, in crafting the sound of the late 90s and early noughts, something between post-rave, pop music and deep chill, man. He told me all about the new album, The Painter. He told me about catching Madonna on the lav and also his breakdown and what really happens when you're sectioned. It's an astonishing life. So let's listen to Colours Colliding to get us in the spirit. William Orbit featuring Polly Scattergood. And now on to our special guest. He has cupboards full of Grammys, I believe, and has worked with the finest musicians of the last few decades, including, but not exclusively, Blur, Robbie Williams, U2, Britney Spears, Pink, All Saints, and then some singer who goes by the name of Madonna or something, however she is. He also paints in oils. He has presented his own radio show. He used to be a seasoned squatter and yet also managed to hold himself up in a hotel for three years when he had a house round the corner in the early 2000s. He sold over 200 million records, as you do. Welcome, Mr. William of Orbit. <laughs> That's a very nice intro. I like that. I like How are you? A crest, weren't I? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I've also been slavishly reading over your biography, and there are, you are the man of a trillion lesser-known facts, um, one of which is you produced Harry Enfield's single Loads of Money in 1988. I did it, fortunately, under a pseudonym of Billy Beat. Ah, Yes. But yes, I did. I still, <laughs> I still see those guys. It was great. We had a laugh yeah. doing it. We really, really did. How long did it take? <laughs> Five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much a pleasure to have you here on The Culture Bunker. We mentioned painting, partly because your new album is entitled The Painter. How did the concept come about in that which came first, the painting or the beat? The painting brought me back. So the music's always been first, and it's not, it's not as if the record was all made in the in the in the last twelve months from scratch. You know, that's mm. never the case with me. There were tendrils going back, but nevertheless, it was it was all about painting. I mean, I started painting from nowhere. I'd always done mm-hmm. ink, but the, with a brush and with actual tubes of paint, this was a new thing, and it took me over. And it was my solace and my, my kind of sanity for for some couple of years, and then the music came back. Was it right that you started painting after you'd been in the Nevada desert on a, a stop smoking course? <laughs> it, well, it was a it's not was, random at all, William. No, it was the Mojave Desert. It was this place called Three Bunch Palms, which is mm-hmm. a spa that was actually made famous it was actually instigated by Al Capone so what they oh. would do all the guys would get on a train and go out to the desert and hang out in this 
spring, which was just basically in the desert, but it's yeah. a spring. It's exactly yeah. what it says. So it's a magical place. So they all went out there, these horrible, nasty bully boy men, you know, mm. the gangsters, and they all mm. loved it. And they set up this place, and I don't know how it morphed into what it is now, but it became a kind of health spa. And I went out there with these two friends of mine, my friend and her daughter, and they were both really into it and doing all the spa treatments. But because I'm, my mission was to give up smoking, mm-hmm. I'm just hating everything. I just don't want anyone even touching me. And I don't want to lie down and have Ayurvedic <laughs> massage or anything. I just don't want to be bad tempered. It was horrible. And they said, William, you drive us nuts. What are you doing here? You've got to do something. Have a look at this. And it was the vino and Van Gogh. You turn up, you sit around a table, they pour out the wine, mm. and they these cheap acrylics, and you just paint, and everybody's chatting, and everybody goes quiet, and it's lovely. I wasn't mm. drinking at the time. I was totally teetotal. So I just got into it, fell in love with it, went back to Los Angeles where I was living, went on Amazon and just bought the shop. This record is happy to nestle. Would you agree with a genre known as, but not exclusively chill out? There's an air of Balearic insouciance. Yes. Do you agree? Are we back to the the early 2000s with some of the textures that you're trying to evoke with this record? It was a con- yes, Sean, it was a conscious decision. Mm-hmm. I didn't want this record to be too far away from its poles in terms of style. I wanted it to f- I wanted it to fit in at least normally into that genre. That's what I wanted. So you can put it on at a dinner party and it's sort of just there mm-hmm. or you can be on a beach listening to it fully intently and both work. And the vocalists are almost all female. I think there is one male voice in it, but correct me if I'm wrong. Katie Malua features on it, Georgia, Beth Orton, Natalie Walker. Do you prefer working with women, not just for what comes out of their mouths, but the way that women work in the studio? And how does that differ? I prefer working with women generally. Um, I've got quite strong views about that. In fact, mm. I, I, you know, I, I start quoting Je- uh, John Stuart Mill at you. My mm. opinion is that I just prefer working with women. Well, I, look, I like a team of guys as well. I like a team of blokes and we're like on a mission. It's like, right, who's in charge? Let's get with a job, common cause, esprit de corps. But I do like working with women. I love the female voice. But it's also just an accident of circumstance as well. There wasn't, I wasn't, there was no gender bar at all, of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. yeah. I just seem to have a, uh, I just seemed that the, it came out that way. Um, it's a good question, actually. But I did. I was actually discussing it with somebody today, you know, and they assumed, as you might have done, that I'm not into working with guys. I said, what about working with boys? And I said, well, mm. absolutely. And they said, would you work with Harry Styles? And I said, yeah. <laughs> no. We'd all work with Harry Styles. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we would. But there's something about this album that does actually require that register, I think. It really works with the female singers. There's something of a, and I'm going to sound like the massive hippie that is always <laughs> underneath. There is a female energy to it. Um, and I think in that really fantastic way that dance music can kind of merge ideas of masculine and feminine and that electronic music can do. That's an amazing thing to, that you just said, and I'm just going to let, let that float around. There's a female energy to the record. I've not actually had that ex- thought put together in such a way running through my head but it's like yeah there is now you mention it and you know hallelujah to that I don't really do a lot of time on social media I've got I like my Instagram and stuff fun but I do sometimes you know I have looked at the metrics once or twice yeah interested but all the graphs of all the people yes age groups and demographics and it is predominantly male I would like to change that also in my pretentious uh, mode the voices are very much woven into the music. They're not sitting on top. Like some records are, a vocalist is singing to a backing track, but it's very much more woven. Is that a skill that you've learned? And have you learned from people you've worked with along the way in how the music becomes a whole? It is actually a physical 
nuts and bolts skill set as much as an aesthetic choice. Right, I like yeah. vocals to weave in and out. Interestingly, vocals sitting on top of a track, it depends on how the track's kind of compressed because you can have it so that the vocals feel like they're sitting on top of the track. Mm-hmm. They're away and it's a very satisfying listen, you know, mm-hmm. to just general music. But going back to the old days, as I say, the 70s, it's pri- and rock music and all sorts of genres, it's surprising how low the vocals are. <laughs> Yeah. It just needs to be a brilliant vocalist whose whose tone just cuts through, but they're often very low in the mix. Yeah. We used to spend so much time agonizing and doing special mixes with a decibel up on the main vocals and half a decibel up and a here's one with a half a decibel down just in case. Nowadays I don't even think about it. I do like to weave in the vocals with the music. To me it's all you know, one and the same, but the technique there's a there's a lot of technical ways of doing this as well. Mm-hmm. Releasing what's in the background if there's a tangle to, to, cause to me, it's always, I mix for lyrics. I always right. mix for lyrics yeah. when I'm mixing or doing music. It's like, we need to know the sentiment needs to be. And sometimes it's very technical. It's all to do with nudging bits of sound around and frequencies yeah. and stuff yeah. like that, that you learn as a producer. Who's the most fun in the studio? I was going to ask, or does that make a bad record? Musicians are a fun lot. Record producers are a fun lot. We yeah. have fun. We know that it's very, always very. I can't name one because I, we have such a laugh. I mean, you know, from Bono to Madonna to Beth, you know, these are all very funny people. We spend a mm-hmm. lot of time chit chatting and cracking up and using our special code that we all musicians have for discussing musical stuff. There's a lot of chat and a lot. It, all sessions are like that. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a feature. You'd never see this on a movie set. Time is money, you know, it's like you turn up, get on your marks, get cracking, you know. Sometimes you don't even know you're being recorded. Right. Because I'm so technically on the chops that I know I know in the back of my head that, okay, you might look at this session and think, it's a bit random, right? You know, everybody's just chilling out and doing things randomly. But in my back of my head, I know, like, I know, I see what you're doing now. I've got that and that's what I need on tape. We can change that. We can double that. Or this is perfect because I like the spontaneity. Mm-hmm. So they're all fun. Okay. <laughs> Although I have had a few that weren't fun, and I'm not going to say what they were. They're few and far between, but there's been some. There's been a couple of turds. <laughs> <laughs> well, there always are, aren't they? They make the the good ones seem even better. You once walked in on Madonna in the toilet, and she didn't seem to mind. I read that story's getting out there. <laughs> We hadn't known each other that long, and uh, <laughs> we're in the studio in New York, mm. and exactly that, yeah, I just went in there, and she's doing a number two, and I'm like, oh, oh I'm so sorry, you know, typically English, and I'm mm. super embarrassed, and she, she just said, carry on, you know, I'm, <laughs> I was brought up in a house where there's one bathroom and lots of kids, it's, I, I'm not bothered if you're not, you know, and it's like, that, at that point, I clocked that she's somebody that, when you're in, she's very, I mean, I, the word down to earth is, is, is misused. What does that mm. mean? But I mean, mm, mm. It's, it's, she's somebody that just gets on with stuff in a very kind of cool, matter of fact, interesting, fun, cool way in the studio. Hardworking, of course. All musical artists, whatever the, whatever their kind of huge visual pop culture splash they make, their core job is being in the studio, getting down mm. with engineers and producers and tape operators and, and other musicians getting on with the job. Mm. And that's the joy of it. Now, on another note, I want to ask you about, because you've had some difficult times, TM, in the last couple of years. Um, and I was listening to the record. I'm wondering, would the record have been the same without you having experienced what you were calling a breakdown in the last couple of years? Pretty soon, I'll be able to say it was more than two years ago. I did actually play that little game when I took my diary and I went wound it back to this day two years ago. And it's like, we're not out of it yet, but soon... <laughs> To answer your question, I mean, I think there's no question, yeah. I mean, I just submitted, like, to, to the creativity like I've never done before. I definitely felt 
a similar feeling to how I felt in 1996 and 97 when Lust Stuff was exploding, when I also had, <laughs> I'd also come out of some very difficult family awfulness, actually. And then I went into Ray of Light, not really fully recovered. So that was a bit difficult. It was a bit like going, being drafted into the army when you're just recovering from, <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, of course, we made it through. Um, this time around, I felt the same inspiration, but none of the trauma. And it's been a joy. And my life is very happy right now. And I don't mean that in a, well, gushy or, or mawkish way, nor do I mean it in a manic kind of way. It's mm-hmm. just very, it's a good life at the moment. And I'm grateful. And it's like, yes, it's true. You can make a beautiful record and enjoy the process and have a happy time. And all you, you know, your relationships in life and family and things just get at my late age to where they should be. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's true that you had a breakdown and you had to be sectioned or you had to section yourself. I didn't know I was sectioned under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act. Yeah, I was, put, I was imprisoned, basically, under, you know, I was put away in this very, very old hospital in Pimlico. It's, it's closed now. It's, they closed it down. It's like, right. what is even doing? It was a bit like out of Dickens. It was closed because it had such terrible resources there. I mean, no. Uh, it was quite rough, actually, and I did mm-hmm. actually get a bit bruised physically while I was there, just because those places are intense. Wow. And there were people a lot iller than I was. I got over it pretty quickly, fortunately. I managed to climb out of it. I did uh, try to escape. You know, I ducked between these two security guards and ran down the street, and they caught me, and they dragged me back, and they had me on the floor, injecting me, you know, with something. I haven't done any crime, um, yet my liberty has been taken away legally. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad I did it all and I'll write about it one day because it was quite a story and um, no hard feelings, no harm, no foul. Mm. It's giving me an insight. I mean, I care about the matter very much. I care about that. I consider myself ever so fortunate that I was able to recover. Mm-hmm. And there are many unfortunates who are not. And, of course, the impact on the family, if it's children or it's the parent, is unbelievable. And I'm very aware of that. Are you happy to be a famous producer again and musician? Do you want this to be global? Do you want it to be big, this record? Yeah, I want to be a household name as a record producer, if you don't mind. Thank you very much. And then in all modesty. <laughs> well, why not? It's like that old, I'm the only gay in the village. You know, it's like, I'm, it, you know, there's a, spe- in, in certain animal species, there's, mm. there's um, a term called conspecific. Mm-hmm. Spiders are conspecific. I think okay. that's the right word. And it means they don't like to be in groups. They like to be the only spider around and they'll chase others off. Now, right. I, I love collaborative work. I love to be in a group working. But if I'm invited to a, a dinner party and the host says, oh, there's this other record producer coming, you'd really love to meet them. I'm like, no, I would <laughs> like to be the only record producer in the village. <laughs> I'll remember that for the future then. Yes, <laughs> there's a lot of them around. Wonderful. Well, I absolutely um, basked in this record. It is glorious and you can just bathe in it. I mean, it's really beautiful. Almost at points when I'm in that certain mood makes me want to cry. And that is the best thing when it really, you know, feel it pouring out of you. Um, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you today. Keep being the best producer in the village, please. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. And the painter is out now. Thank you, Sean, and thank you, Alex. It's Alex, isn't it? Thank you both. And finally, it's rockumentary, if you will, time. The Rolling Stones celebrate 60 years together this year. We are unlikely to see any other rock bands reach 60. 
And over this weekend, BBC Two launches My Life as a Rolling Stone, a series of four one-hour documentaries individually profiling Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Ronnie Wood and the late Charlie Watts. Sadly, there was no room for Bill Wyman because il n'est plus un rock star anymore. We have two Stones agnostics here and one Stones freak. Can you guess who is who? But before we talk it over, here is the very, very, very short trailer. I gave up many years ago trying to analyse this bunch and why it works. It's not only about music. The greatest rock and roll band in the world. No one had seen anything like it. Music is a resilient thing. God is the only thing we've got that we can trust. Andrew Perry, there's no point starting with me or Sean. You're a Stones man to the core. Which of these did you watch? Um, I did make it to the end of this series. Oh, yeah. oh there you <laughs> go. Well, <laughs> what did uh, you think? Well, I actually thought this was quite an interesting little run of programmes. I mean, mm. obviously, they've been having documentaries done. There's one called Charlie is My Darling from about 1964-65, <laughs> shot, uh, shot in Ireland uh, with Andrew Oldham and stuff uh, right. when he was the manager. So there's been a lot of these things made. And I think what they really set out to do is just hit a few points mm. to cover the regular stuff. Mm. There's a blues boom bit, you know, in the in the the uh, Keith documentary, for instance, stuff that you've seen a million times before. But they do manage to hit a few points which are go against conventional wisdom, and I think are very insightful. For instance, the Mick Jagger documentary. I think makes a very good case. And Mick himself, who doesn't really talk about this thing very much, just says really how he has kept that band going. Mm. And that, you know, there's a lot of times where they were all shilly-shallying around. Keith and Ronnie are just totally off their heads. And it was really Mick that kept the show on the road. But it was quite insightful about where that came in. And I hadn't really realised this, but Mick really took the reins after Altamont. Mm. because they were just terribly advised ad- advised for that thing. So, oh, we'll just get a bunch of Hells Angels and they'll do what the could possibly go wrong? Yeah. What could go wrong? <laughs> and, of course, they ended up looking pretty bad at the end of that. To say and the they, least. Yes. Um, it didn't do well for their uh, public image. Yeah. And it's, uh, at that point, Mick started to take more of a kind of managerial interest but also they were uh, this is what I didn't know because I know a lot less than you do but they were broke yeah absolutely broke uh, uh, I I found I I mean I watched the Mick one and the Keith one I was with the Mick one I was quite surprised I I, kind of rather warm to him he seems to have a sense of humour about himself my job is just to be a big show off he says Uh, but also how he has this kind of Captain Mannering role of somebody's got to strap (laughs) this bloody mess together absolutely yeah that's that's what I'm saying and you know and he says um look after the others to make sure they don't get screwed. Yeah. Which begins to take on for, you know, we see him as this rather cold-blooded sort of money-grabbing. He says, look, look, I don't like business, but what I do like, he said, you know, I don't like spending time Mm. talking about money, but I do like just looking at every angle to make the best show possible. And anybody who's been to the Stones, whether it's a, you know, Wembley Arena or Hyde Park, which I saw them last Sunday. Anybody who's seen those shows, you can only be sort of uh, gobsmacked at the scale, the attention to detail. And yet within that, this incredibly 
loose freewheeling thing that just goes on there for two hours you know where people don't really know what's going on <laughs> and, you know they're all looking at each other going you know what, what are you playing now uh it, it it's actually an incredible thing that he has almost you know single-handedly sort of governed if you like yeah. the keith one was also quite surprising to me i mean they do go heavy on the rather repetitive, rather boring. He's a travelling troubadour rebel being a legend and he's on the outsider badass. Let's go, for God's sake. But the thing that surprised me and I actually found quite winning was his kind of strange, his weird shyness. Absolutely. And also his articulacy, articulacy, even though it's through that kind of rattled voice. He's got a corduroy face and a throat to match. But, but from it comes this kind of, he has a lot of insights into what the band are. And also, you know, he's kind of quite open about how confusing he's always found it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, are, are you are you a Stones fan as well? Uh, um... Well, I used to be massive Stones fan because I was pitching um, myself against the Beatles <laughs> constantly, which I still do. Um, so I absolutely loved them. But in recent years, I, I just don't understand the dinosaur of them. That bit doesn't appeal to me. Um, I found this really interesting in everything that you're talking about. It was just the mix stuff. It's the, the mic control, how you actually do have to, that a band doesn't stay together by accident. You have to really, someone has to look after everyone. And he did, did seem to take on that role. Now that's absolutely fascinating. I don't care for the myth. I didn't care for the voiceover kept telling me that they're the ultimate rock and roll band. I don't care. I don't find that interesting. I don't, you haven't even defined what rock and roll is to me, lady on the TV. It's Sienna but, Miller. Of all people. Oh, is it? Mm. Um, but yeah, but, but, but you know, the machinations, how they exist now and how they could have fallen apart is the interesting story, isn't it? I only saw the one because I do find Keith is it's fine, but we get a lot of, you know, not the real person behind it. I was wondering if, if you know, the, the, the documentary maybe showed you something behind that, the humanity, mm. rather than the, you know, frankly, blokes gang yeah, that, you know that the stones kind of presents. You know, yeah. um, I, I mean, just wonder whether you know you found that because definitely in actually in the Keith one that side of him as the the shy guy he tells this story about going to a movie and someone just he, they're mm. sitting there with the lights down and then someone comes and goes it's Keith Richards and he, he just he goes purple he just goes yeah. blushes mm. and just goes it's so embarrassing you know it just ruins the movie for everybody mm. and I just thought what a sweet because. Yeah, I think us Stones fans, we do feel that he is, everything we've heard is that he is actually fundamentally just a very lovely, decent guy. What Mick says, which is very illuminating, he said that he's he is fundamentally a very shy man, very introverted, who gets to express his extrovert side. But the introvert side finds it very difficult to cope with mm. a lot of the other stuff and you know the 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 fame part of it the recognition and that really you know all his fabled kind of dalliances with booze and drugs mm. were really just an escape from mm -hmm. that you know mm. that from from the age of 18 he's kind of been self-medicating is what mm. i'm saying there's a really sweet Which, story about how his granddad basically gets him into his granddad an old jazzer yeah basically yeah. gets him into playing purely from spending time with him mm. and eventually you know pointed to a guitar on the wall and said, do you want to have a go? That's right. He was, he's not like a driven guy at all. It's just a little sort of thing that he used to do with his granddad. There is not really any critical edge to this, is there? There's no sort of criticism or, or uh, you know, kind of um, no, interrogation. for them, isn't it? It's yeah, I mean, a lot of things, including an ultimate, and also the death of Brian Jones, have really, really skated over. 
aren't they? Mm. But I just, well, I mean, but it's presented as four portraits, mm. and I think it's very true to that format, you know. And so the blues bit happens in the Keith documentary, you know, the stuff about them as a touring machine happens in the Mick program, mm. you know. So it does kind of tell the story of the band, a lot of which you know already. Mm. But by doing these portraits, you just find out some very interesting things. And yeah. I mean, in the Keith bit, I mean, the thing that I, I took away as well was, uh, which is something I passionately believe, is that he's greatly underrated as a songwriter. You know, mm. um, Mick, again, very illuminating, says, um, uh, yeah, but Keith wrote, you know, as tears go by, Ruby Tuesday, Angie, and yet he's seen as this sort of, you know, Cro-Magnon kind of <laughs> smashing up his guitar. But he, he wrote some of the most sensitive songs there. He talks about how when um, Andrew Oldham sort of told them that they had to go and start writing songs so that they'd made money, yeah. that Keith was the one who sat there and made them all watch the Beatles. Mm. And they would just watch the Beatles sort of on uh, Ready, Steady, Go and stuff to try and work out what they were doing so that they could replicate it and write songs. Yeah. You know? And th- th- he was the guy sort of almost drilling them, which is, yeah, I don't think you would have realised that. Obviously, this was filmed during the pandemic. We occasionally see sort of various roadies running around with masks on. What's the Charlie one like? Because he's died since they finished making it. Because Charlie's the sort of shy, retiring one, and you can see that they're kind of struggling to kind of find out who he is. Hmm. And I think they would have done if he was alive and he'd been interviewed for it, you know. Mm. They make a pretty good job of that. Obviously, sort of uh, post-mortem, they uh, get to go to this lock-up where he kept a load of stuff. Mm. And there's all sorts of weird stuff in there. Uh, There's a drum kit that Elvis bought for DJ Fontana (laughs) for their their first sort of touring, properly touring engagements once they're on RCA and stuff. And yeah, he he had some other kind of weird little knickknacks, mm. but also that he was quite. I, I've got this picture of him as a just a dyed in the wool jazzer, and that's really all he's interested in. But Mick pipes up and says, "Yeah, but when in the early mid seventies, when me and Charlie were by nature hanging out more together because Keith and, and Mick Taylor were both kind of on the nod and mm. uh, <laughs> sort of partying in Nelco's and what have you." Me and Charlie were, were listening to lots of dub reggae, Ooh. you know, but, but they and then it, when it goes into the disco phase that Charlie was kind of obsessed with what was happening rhythmically to R&B. Mm. And so obviously Charlie's beat is on uh, Miss You, you know, which is one yeah. of the great sort of drum beats of all time. I mean, as you know, I'm a, very much a Stones agnostic. But that's my, that's my favourite bit of the Stones. When the Stones go disco, that's when I like the, the Stones. Well, there we are. You see, I think, and so the answer to your question about that documentary, they're trying to find stuff for people like you that might actually <laughs> just go, oh, right, yeah. so it's not just a boring programme about drumming. Uh, I, it is actually, I, yeah. I, I found it, you know, quite... And and you absolutely love him as well. He had he had a house in North Devon, which I didn't realise. It had fifteen dogs. He couldn't ride a horse, but they had kept horses and he loved keeping things, but he didn't he wasn't really, he didn't leap on himself. And he also had this old vintage car. 
but he didn't have a driving license and he couldn't drive it. And he used to, someone says that he used to just sit in the car <laughs> and just go, yeah. This is nice. Yeah, this is great. It, <laughs> it's like a, like a Bugatti, but it's not a Bugatti. Yeah. I can't remember what make it is. No need to take it out. He'll only wear yeah, it out. Yeah, <laughs> just, a, just a really lovable. And of course, he was with his wife for 57 years, mm. I think they say, Shirley. So that's nice. And then, of course, Ronnie is also interesting. That's a, he, He's a, a very strange man, I think, Ronnie. A caricature that was almost drawn to sort of fit in that cartoon that is the Rolling Stones, you know. Um, mm. and, and, and a sort of, uh, he, he was kind of the life and soul of the party when their own party was getting a little bit jaded and uh, people were sort of kind of going down the wrong avenues. Yeah. Uh, so they all used to hang out at his house in Richmond, looking over the river and just uh, sit in the basement and all sorts of people like, you may not know that David Bowie co-wrote, I know it's only rock and roll, but I like it. I did not know that. Right, yeah, yeah. In Ronnie's basement, because Amazing. Ronnie was such a good guy. And, uh, and presumably was the provider of all forms of entertainment. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, I was surprised how much, because uh, as somebody can take or leave the stones, I was surprised how much I enjoyed this. What did you think, Sean? Um, I did enjoy it, actually. Uh, as much as it is a bit, you know, it's it's not, um, it's softened the edges, hasn't it, somewhat? So it's I will watch edges, more. Yeah. I might even watch the Ronnie, Ronnie Wood one. <laughs> Yeah, wow, that's going some. Right. <laughs> well, My Life as a Rolling Stone is available from today, Saturday, the 2nd of July. Episode one goes out tonight, I think, and it's all on iPlayer at the same time. Finally, as regular listeners know, we ask all of our guests to bring in their favourite tune of all time to add to our playlist. Andrew Perry, what is the greatest record of all time? Hands down, it is Chicken Strut by The Meters. And why is that? It has chicken noises on okay. it. Okay. Which, put, well, it puts it in a, on a level of sublimity, which other pop records can only mm-hmm. sort of aspire to. It's a record which, on initial hearing, is kind of a novelty pop record. But the more I listen to it, and God knows I've listened to it many, many times, <laughs> and ha- as have uh, as has anybody who attends my occasional DJing um, engagements, I find it just absolutely perfect. The Meters are a four-piece band who just somehow lock together in this incredible way. They're, to me, they're a, a funkier version of Booker T and the MGs. Place them in time for the listeners who might not know the meters. That record, I would guess, is in about 1969, something right. like that. Uh, and the meters were a New Orleans four-piece. People have probably heard of Aaron Neville, the uh, Neville Brothers mm-hmm. singer. Uh, with a keyboard player as Art Neville, one of the Neville family. Uh, they were produced by the great Alan Toussaint. But this one tune with the, with the chicken noises, it just has a uh, an equilibrium, a rhythmic swing, melody. And, and chickens. And, 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 and a sort of a clearly a not taking yourself very seriously yeah. aspect to it. But it has uh, its only sort of human words i can't say what the chickens are talking about but uh, <laughs> the the uh, the chorus is keep on strutting well we're going to stick that on the rolling playlist on both spotify and tidal listeners and you too can keep on strutting and with that we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter 
What will we be discussing as we swig a nice glass of Chateau Neuf de Pap and swirl into a 38,000 date tour personally sorted by Mr. Mick Jagger? Andrew. <laughs> I'm sure listeners have come across this in the past couple of weeks, the DAL-E AI art machine, hmm. which is yes. a page which you can add any request you like, and it will use artificial intelligence to generate images. And people have been doing things like Jesus and Moses playing football with Muhammad. And it's a, you get a picture, amusing picture of the uh, great heads of the religion having a right old time and those great <laughs> lads having fun together. I put in Margaret Thatcher at the Hacienda and got an amazing oh, yeah. mashup of Ian Curtis and Margaret Thatcher. Boris Johnson as a Santarin, as I did this morning, and you get Boris Johnson as, as a Santarin. But the, the thing that I found remarkable about it is that no matter what you do, it always looks like Francis Bacon. Mm. Whatever, <laughs> whatever, anything you ask it to do, Jennifer O'Curry playing snooker, uh, <laughs> Morrissey on a trampoline, it always looks like Francis Bacon. Lou uh, Reed and Pinky and Perky. Lou Reed and Pinky and Perky, yes, there you go. Dennis Thatcher in the Beatles, it all looks like Francis Bacon. And it made right. me realise that Francis Bacon wasn't making it up. He was seeing through to the substrata of reality wow. and saying that's what it really is like. Well, he worked a lot from photographs and from animals, so if that helps, it is, there you life go. is a circle. Yeah. But I do um, I do recommend, if, you, if you're not aware of it yet, listeners, do Google DAL-E, that's D-A-L-L dot E, as like Wally, ha-ha, DAL-E, and uh, have a play around with it and um, you will amaze and disgust yourself. And send in your hilarious... <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I I think think or not. Yeah. We <laughs> cannot return any of your paintings <laughs> yes. we will put them usual, on our wall <laughs> yeah as usual andrew you were you were googling the word dalek and you and just yes, found it sort of by uh, mistake by yes yes andy perry what's your closing time chatter as someone that's been going out quite a lot mm-hmm. uh, of late uh, it, it's really just about the return of music post pandemic. I mean, I've seen some incredible shows, not mm. just the Rolling Stones uh, this week, LCD Sound System, oh, yes. Jack White, with just the uh, musicians absolutely on fire, you know, sort of pent up energies, both on stage and off. Just incredible moments in the live music arena. As if the pandemic never happened, and obviously anybody that watched all the coverage from uh, Worthy Farm last mm. weekend, probably, and all those doubting Thomases, who thought, is it really safe? You know, probably thought, you know what, we can get back out there now. I suppose, uh, you know, just in the chatter on the way into the studio today, we all know half a dozen people, you know, before <laughs> yeah. you even start to yeah. think about it, who've actually, um, you know, picked up COVID in the last few days. We sit in a uh, in a bit of a weird position uh, where it's sort of I think we're beginning to feel like you know our life is getting back to the kind of freedoms that we we knew before, but it's just kind of also just a little moment going oh <laughs> actually um, yeah. are we going to be all right here you're going to uh, have to budget in you go to a big show you're going to have to budget in 10 days of the rock and roll runner subsequently because mm. uh, there seems to be a lot of it about i mean interestingly the the, the rolling stones show you know apparently was a, a complete mick has had covid right uh, at 78 and, yeah. and got through which obviously and is the covid has got keith but it recovered yeah <laughs> That's right. it hasn't turned into a junkie yet you <laughs> mean. yeah it was a completely closed backstage a friend mm. of mine knows all the crew but it's they sorted him out with tickets and, yeah. and but they couldn't nobody saw anybody pet shop you know, boys so. me was the same sealed I've, and closed they, have, yeah. they just have to otherwise yeah. it sinks at all sean what's your closing time chatter 
Just um, an RIP for Margaret Keane, who was the artist who painted all those big eyes pictures, if you remember. And there's a film with Amy Adams by Tim Burton about her work and the fact that her husband was passing it off as his own um, for a great, great long time. She died last week, age 94. And it's just a good excuse to go back and look at those paintings because they are just so disarming and extraordinary. I mean, no one else painted like her. There's a kind of a very odd populist mainstream you know idea that this was on cards this was on um everybody's walls this was the poster you could buy but also they are just so completely peculiar when you look at them and so full of almost a monk-like scream i mean there's this absolute sadness that come from them so i've just been enjoying this week i've been mainly enjoying looking at margaret Keane paintings and i advise you to do the same but she lived to 94 so she did did do it and she was vindicated by that film too she was vindicated And that is the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to William Orbit and to Andrew Perry for joining us on The Culture Monker. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an education as always. Listeners, remember, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. Uh, links are at the top of the show notes. From me and from Sean and from producers Alex Reese and Yelna Sofronievich, thanks for listening and we'll see you this time next week. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison and Sean Pandon. And the producers were Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese, back from Glastonbury with no COVID yet. Music by Kenny Dickinson, The Culture Bunker, is a Podmasters production.